All right, guys, I want to tell you about our brand new Spider-Man Battle Robes. We continue this partnership with Marvel. These are badass. They're uh, just an incredible tool. If you've never been introduced to Battle Robes, we have a wealth of knowledge and illustration videos on the honoredacademy.com to show you how to use these things, but they're fairly simple. Uh, there's a number of moves you can learn to do with the battle ropes that are incredible for building aerobic capacity. If you want to go hard and do interval training, you can build anaerobic capacity, lactate threshold, all the stuff that you're going to need when you're in a fight or when you're just wanting to shed pounds extra quick. High-intensity intervals is the way to go. And battle ropes are low impact. They're an incredible resource. I think everyone should have a set at their house, and there's no reason you shouldn't have these awesome Spider-Man battle ropes. You can check them out at onnit.com. Welcome to the Human Optimization Hour with Kyle Kingsbury, presented by Onnit. Facelift! Yo, we changed the name one more time. That's all good. And uh, as I've mentioned before, we're ahead of the game. Uh, a lot of these podcasts are recorded a few months ahead of time. Not on purpose, just because we've had a wealth of guests come through town, largely due to the influx during Paleo FX week. Uh, so you may hear me state that, uh, welcome to the On It podcast, we've got so-and-so on, and that's okay. It is no longer the On It podcast. You have not clicked on the wrong podcast. It is the Human Optimization Hour with Kyle Kingsbury. Here we go. T-Man, 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 T-Man. Kyle Tierman is in the house. Kyle Tierman is a guy I got turned on to from Dr. Chris Ryan, the author of Sex at Dawn. Phenomenal book I'm sure most of you are familiar with. If you are not, buy it with a caution. Uh, if you're married, you might get slapped in the face by your wife if you buy that book. But enough about Chris Ryan. He's an amazing dude. He turned me on to Kyle Tierman. Kyle Tierman is an amazing dude. He is a surfer, a big wave surfer who travels the world and looks at social issues as well as environmental issues and that's been his entry point to be able to travel all over the world he's sponsored by patagonia and a couple of different companies but truly an amazing human being he's a journalist he writes for a number of publications and he has a wealth of knowledge in all things i i don't think that i've met a man as young as him who has as much experience in the world as kyle Tierman. we got to do a lot of fun stuff together while he was in town he stayed at my house a few nights um might have partaken uh, in uh, some extracurricular activities with him. He came to Aubrey's fiance's uh, birthday party with Whitney Miller and had an absolute blast. And I got nothing but love for this guy. I know you guys are going to dig this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, we just jump right in here. We've got my man, Kyle Thierman. 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 Not Thierman. It's Thierman, you right? Don't, you don't say Thomas. You say Thomas. T -H. That's true. Well, you do say Thurman Thomas. You do. There we go. Yeah, Tierman is a German name, but um, my <laughs> But my grandfather was adopted. It was a closed adoption. So he was born in Scotland out of wedlock, and they flew him to. That's called a bastard, exactly. by the way. Damn it! Don't call my grandfather a bastard, <laughs> sir. He was born out those of wedlock. Those be fighting words. We're not in five. We haven't gone in five minutes. It of is this the podcast. definition. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I don't actually know where my family comes from because it was close adoption. And then he was adopted into the Chairman family. Mm, okay. Yeah. So did you ever do like your 23andMe or any of that shit? No, but I just uh, got it. Chris Ryan actually gave me a 23andMe uh, kit. Kit, yeah. So I can, I can do it. I just haven't done it yet. That's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Did you see, here's something that'll fuck, fuck your whole world up. Uh, my buddy was out... <sighs> 
they still live where, where you're at in the Bay Area. And um, they sent me this thing, how they caught the Golden State Killer. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of this, but they used DNA information to track this guy without him ever having submitted a DNA report, which means they located him through all of the family members that had submitted DNA reports. There's a, there's a huge write-up on this. It's going to sound retarded if I'm saying it like that, but basically this guy was anonymous and they tracked him down through his family's genetics, knowing wow. certain attributes about him and caught the Golden State Killer. You can Google this shit, Golden State Killer. We're so close to Minority Report. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're going to have fucking precogs. Yeah. You were going to beat off in 500 feet of a school. Do you have any thoughts on CRISPR? It's, it's, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on CRISPR. You cannot change one aspect of DNA without fucking having a cascade of downstream and upstream effects. So whatever we do to give a child perfect blue eyes and blonde hair, or make them three inches taller is going to fuck with all sorts of shit, especially the more complicated the DNA. You know, if you're fucking with a tomato, that still ha causes a chain reaction. But if you start doing that with humans, you're going to see fucked up people running around yeah. in no time at all. But what? China we, can run those We can't outsmart nature? No, no. There's, it's all interconnected. And we don't even understand. <clears throat> fucking 20 years ago, they called most of our epi epigenetics. They were looking at that as junk DNA. They still don't know what all of it does. They know what our hardwired DNA does. Like you're going to be this tall. You're going to have this color hair. Um, this is your likelihood for Alzheimer's disease. Shit like that. There's so much more than that, though. The vast majority is is a story that's not yet told. So to fucking start playing with that and manipulating it and, and just saying like, well, we know this one does this thing. Yeah. It's all fucking connected. Yeah. It's looking at it from a Western science point of view, right? Like, hey, we have problem X with our knee. This is how we, we can treat the pain or we can cut it and give it a surgical pr uh, procedure. And it's seriously only looking at the exact issue with the yeah. symptom and the problem where it is not yeah. how did you get the knee injury what's causing the pain is it fixable without surgery it's a very atomized way of looking at things similarly in the western medical system right there's an issue that you might have with depression so they say all right well you are this single entity and we're going to try and fix it with this pill rather than looking at your social circles rather than looking at your diet your community childhood trauma yeah, yeah. fucking diet too i'm talking i talk to people about that all the time 80 to 90 percent of our neurotransmitters are made by the gut microbiome so perhaps the shitty food you put in your mouth each day contributes to how you feel that includes serotonin which they're trying to upregulate with ssris 80 to 90 percent of which made in the gut yeah you got to feed the good guys yeah, you you sure need to exercise some humility when you are going down those roads of certainty. Like, we have the solution here. I uh, was talking to you the other day about uh, Jim Fadiman, who I had on my podcast, and he was telling me... Hold on, back up, though. Jim Fadiman is your fucking neighbor. He's my neighbor. That is the coolest shit ever. Jim yeah. Fadiman wrote the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. He's a legend in the... He is microdosing. He is, he's brought 30 years of microdosing science to the world. I encourage people to listen to him on your podcast as well as the Tim Ferriss show. He is a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. He, uh, I had, I had read his book. Um, I'd been interested in microdosing and psychedelics for some time. I didn't know that he lived in Santa Cruz. I also didn't know that I would bike by his house most days to go surfing. Mm -hmm. So we did a podcast and he's like, Oh yeah, here's my address. I'm like, 
you literally live three blocks away from me, dude. And uh, anyway, he told me a story about, this is kind of getting back to the whole interconnectedness, uh, about mycelium in, uh, and, and how trees in forests will use mycelium as their um, internet, basically their way to communicate, to the point that a giraffe can eat a leaf on one tree and through the mycelium, that tree will communicate to the rest of the trees in the forest to secrete a substance that giraffes don't like. But the giraffes know this. So the giraffes will try and move just out far, just outside of that communication circle. So like everyone's in on the joke except for us, right? We're just figuring this out through, uh, through people like Jim Fadiman, through people like Paul Stamets. And uh, it's cool, man. It's so cool. Yeah, it's fucking Avatar. Yeah. We're, we're living it. It's exactly what they're talking about in Avatar, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a chance to go out uh, on a hunting trip just three or four days ago on the Big Island. And I was, I'm learning how to bow hunt. And one of my mentors is this guy named Justin Lee, who's a badass. He spearfishes down to 200 plus feet. He's one of the top 10 American uh, spear fishermen, and he's also a black belt bow hunter. And the way that he can read the most subtle cues from nature as we're walking along this pathway, whether it's you know, the dew on the grass that is slightly fractured in a certain area, and through that dew, he can tell that a pig's been there just 20 minutes before. He's know? like the, the Native American and predator who picks up the... Right, poop off the ground and touches it with his tongue and he knows where Predator is. Well, we were talking about this yesterday. When you immerse yourself deeply in aspects of nature, your, sense, your senses become heightened. Mm. You know? and That's right. And we were talking about fasting too. I know Rogan has a buddy that, that fasts while he hunts and he says his smell picks up every day he goes without food. Yeah. That's, that's, I, it's, I'm fascinated by it. I want to get into hunting and I definitely want to go fucking hunting with you. Uh, and Greenfield and Dudley and Rogan and Aubrey and, and as many people as I can. It, it just seems the ultimate way to hack that primal piece of yourself. Yeah. Like Dan Hardy was a great, great fighter and friend of mine. He was there at my first ayahuasca ceremony, he helped me quite a bit. He always talked about, you know, as I did ayahuasca, I pulled away from fighting. He still wanted to do it. He wanted to tap into his reptilian brain. So he wrote a book, Part Reptile. And it's like every thing we can do as humans that really hones us into that primordial piece of ourselves well fucking hunting is about as close to that as you can get you know having to to clean your own animal like there's just you're deeply connected to that yeah i got into hunting through kind of a random occurrence i was doing a story for discovery digital network i worked for them as a correspondent for a number of years doing environmental and, and ocean stories and uh, a friend of mine uh, named Dr. Jameson Gove is an oceanographer, and specifically he studies, um, I'm going to get back to hunting here, but he studies land-based impacts on coral reefs, um, what we are doing here that is impacting coral out there. And we were having a conversation over a couple beers one night, and he's like, man, most people don't know the impact that wild pigs and goats on Hawaii have on coral reefs. I'm like, really? That's... That's kind of crazy. He's like, yeah. So these these pigs and goats will go into these sensitive watersheds and they'll root around, they'll grub they'll, for grubs and snails. And then when it rains, there's no soil retention. So it will 
create this kind of suspended mud over the reef, which will suffocate it. So reefs need, coral reefs need what are called oligotrophic conditions, which is clear water. And when this mud is suspended out over the reef, the coral dies. So I pitched that story uh, to Discovery Digital, and we went out, we got to dive with researchers from NOAA and Division of Aquatic Resources, and then we got to meet my friend Justin, um, who was the bow hunter, and I went along with him on the shoot, and he he shot a boar, and I just got to see how cool it is. Like everything from, you know, the... I've been saying it a lot so far, but like the interconnectedness of an impact that a pig can have up on the mountain all the way out to a coral reef. And through hunting, you are incentivized to learn about your natural surroundings in a way that few people are. I think similarly, um, surfing, you know, like there aren't many groups that are that tuned in to that seam between society and the wild. And there's a lot going on right in that little seam and not many people are paying attention to it. Yeah, and it's, I, you know, one thing I feel when I'm around high-level surfers is kind of like being around high-level jujitsu guys. There's like a certain level of calmness. There's a certain level of extrovertedness where they just are open and, and not afraid to be themselves. They know who they are and they feel a deeper connection in life to whatever the fuck that is whether that's nature source whatever you want to call it um it's certainly there but i want to back up a little bit because we've 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 fucking jumped right in here you're a guy who's traveled the world you're doing all sorts of cool shit you get to really look at how we're fucking up the earth which is fairly important i try to address that you know with what's happening with our food and glyphosate and monsanto and shit like that but truly what are the environmental issues going on? But how did you get into that stuff? And then what got you into podcasting and launching all this shit? Because you're blowing this is, up. This is a long story. You're blowing we we that's got a, some time. I hate giving people loaded questions. But that's the mother load question. Sure. Um, well, from a very young age, my mom uh, ensured that when I would travel to go on surf trips when I would um, just move through life that I had a sense that I represented something to people. So like when I was young, I got to take a trip down to Chile. Um, and before that trip, my mom said, Kyle, before you go, you should read this book on Augusto Pinochet, who was a dictator who was put in power by the CIA in 1973. And ran Chile like an iron fist. You know, there are stories of musicians singing songs against Pinochet and he would just cut off their hands. And most people in Chile know that this was a coup that happened as a result of the CIA. So her point was, Kyle, look, when you are traveling, know that you represent something to people. So be respectful. And um, I was, I've always been fascinated by um, you know, we were just talking before we went on, like you can learn anything, you can learn everything through anything. And I knew that I love surfing. I love traveling. I want to see as much of the world as possible. And I found that that was a point of entry that I could learn about a myriad of subjects. So, um, I got to travel when I was young. Uh, and when I was 18, um, I sought out a sponsor, uh, which is a company called Patagonia. I was I was surfing for a few other companies at the time, 
And I really wanted to have a company that aligned with my values more, and, and Patagonia was that. So I reached out to them, and uh, I actually, it's a, it's a pretty funny story. I had a friend who knew the owner, Yvonne Chouinard, and I wrote him a letter, and I told him that I was would- Was it handwritten? It was not handwritten. It was, a, it was an email. Okay. It was an email. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is kind I was of a, say that's old school. I didn't old think school. that old. It was, yeah, it was. It was over a candlelight. <laughs> <He was laughs> fucking Benjamin Franklin's rubber stamp. Sanskrit written. <laughs> um, anyway, I wrote him uh, a letter, and around that time, I was learning a lot about banking system and the impact that we have through our, the impact that we can have socially and environmentally through the choices of where we bank. Right, so I wrote them a letter, um, and I said that I wanted to talk with them about their banking practices because when you put money into a bank, it doesn't stay there. Um, if you put a hundred dollars in a bank, it is legally lent out um, through fractional reserve lending at about ten times that amount. Right, so I thought that this was this kind of interesting point of entry into some social and environmental change that not many people knew about. Because if you put your money into a bank like, say, Bank of America, Chase, Citigroup, chances are it's being funneled out to fund something halfway around the world that you don't really know about, right? Uh, whereas if you have your money in a local bank or credit union, it's also being lent out. But it's lent out within your community, right? Mm -hmm. So you can simultaneously stop funding the problem and start funding the solution all in one move in this really easy way. And as I said, through fractional reserve lending, if you put 100 bucks into a bank, that bank can legally lend out 10 times that amount. Right? So it's, it's this really leveraged point of action. So I, I wrote to, to Yvonne Chouinard and said, uh, hey, I want to talk with you about this. Um, I had been doing public school my whole life. And then when I was uh, 17, I started doing homeschool and was able to learn a lot about just kind of like what I was interested in. And uh, the banking system kind of fascinated me through this leveraged point of action. Um, and I wrote them and I said, hey, I want to do a story on a proposed coal power plant down in Chile. Uh, and I know that Bank of America is underwriting the company that is proposing this coal, coal plant. It's down in this fishing village. Um, and most of those people are against it. And I want to do this story on the impact that you can have on your on the environment through banking choices. Um, so he was like, he wrote me back. He was like, this is kind of interesting. I remember I was surfing in Santa Cruz and I, I got an email back. He's like, hey, Kyle, uh, this is Vaughn and this, this stuff sounds kind of interesting. Uh, I'd like to know more about it. So he invited me down to his house and I like I was a 17-year-old kid laying out like the banking system for him. <laughs> and uh, I've surfed for Patagonia for the last 10 years and they've supported me incrementally more and more. But I got to take that trip down to Chile and was thrown into the frying pan. Didn't know how the fuck to make a documentary, but went to the site of the proposed plant, interviewed some fishermen, interviewed uh, scholars, and told a story about how you can put your money in local banks and credit unions and have this really big impact. Um, I released the movie, it was a shitty little YouTube movie, but I released it in 2008. So remember what happened in 2008? Mm -hmm. It was the first time anyone was paying attention to their money because it was all gone, right? It was yeah. the perfect timing for this story to come out. Ariana Huffington came out with her Move Your Money campaign 
And this was, the, the timing just hit, right? In retrospect, I realized that it was all timing. At the time, I think that I thought that I just had like the golden touch of filmmaking and everyone wanted to see- I'm the shit. I'm the shit, yeah. And, <laughs> and we had this campaign to uh, allow people to, to, to write in when they moved their money. So we documented a large amount of money being moved out of these centralized banks and into local banks. Um, that year, which created a, b a bunch of media buzz, and um, and that's kind of how I got how I got started was through this idea that I could use surfing and traveling as this point of entry to talk about environmental and social issues. So that became the Surfing for Change series, which I did um, from when I was eighteen to twenty five, covered issues ranging from. The Indonesia trash epidemic to working conditions in Sri Lanka, all using this point of entry of surfing. Um, it's funny because when I think back on that first movie um, and all the success that I had, I think that it was really damaging to me to have that early success. That hot. I mean, I, I won most youth environmental awards in the country that year, um, and I had a lot of people behind me and I spent a whole year making the next movie which was on how working conditions in Sri Lanka had improved due to consumer pressure. So I fundraised to make that film. Um, I went over there. It wasn't very good because again I just hadn't put the reps in to learn how to tell a good story and make a good make a good movie. Very few people saw that film and I was kind of left scratching my head like it's almost like a chef who makes a meal that everyone loves, but he didn't really know how to make the meal. And if I were to do it all over again, if I were to give myself advice, it would have been to fail much more quickly. And in that next year, I should have made 10 films. Because I think that one thing that most people don't tell you when you start out in anything really, but filmmaking specifically, is that when you start, you're just going to suck at it. So suck quickly. And I think that that... I think I'm kind of just coming out of that now um, through podcasting, right? Mm -hmm. Because podcasting, the it's it's such a kind of low, uh, like low stakes, you know. Like you have a conversation, like ah, oh, that didn't go well. Okay, I'm going to fix it, you know. So I think that that has been one of the biggest learnings of my life is just to fail quickly and and gain a better relationship with it. How many episodes do you have on your podcast now? 102. Yeah, so you're you're fucking rocking and rolling. You're, I love it, and I I mean you're good I at it. I love it. Oh, That's thank what you. I mean by rocking and rolling. Like you're you're excellent with your podcast, and I've listened to Jim Fadiman on your show. Uh, we were talking about Duncan Trussell, the interview you did at Burning Man. I think I've listened to a few other ones. Uh, I'd started listening to you on Aaron Alexander's podcast because he's fucking great. He's family here. When do you feel like you started to to get your wheels and when did you feel like you started to get everything going with the podcast because ferris has this idea like a lot of people ask like oh i want to start a podcast what should i do what's the entry point that kind of shit and it's like well just understand this ferris says your first five will suck no matter what doesn't matter how many times you've been interviewed doesn't matter how many other times you've spoken to people you know in front of live audiences any of that shit public speaking that's all fine but as the interviewer you will suck for your first five episodes. So just take those as learning and continue on because most people quit at five. So what's the question? When do you feel like you started getting 
some steam? When did you feel like you started to shift and, and really break through? I think it was when I gave myself permission to really dive into subjects that I was interested in. Mm. It was obvious that I was going to start interviewing professional big wave surfers because that's what I do. Um, it was obvious that I was going to start interviewing environmentalists. But I think that I, I think that it's very easy as a, a public personality to ossify your identity when people know that that like that's your version. Like this is the version of yourself. When I was on camera, hi, we're in Indonesia, we're covering the Indo the trash epidemic here. I'm a version of myself. Whereas podcasting is unique in the way that. I really am me here. And I, at a certain point, gave myself permission to dive down rabbit holes like psychedelics, like sex. I've had my friend Amy Baldwin on the podcast a number of times. She's a somatic sex and relationship coach. And to see the response from that, like I feel like it's always a good a good podcast when I'm like holding on to my chair, being like, oh, we're really going to put this out there. <laughs> and... I think that that was it, just giving myself the permission to go down those roads. Mm. And it, it, the podcast has always been for an audience of one. And as long as I can keep it that way, um, I, I, I really dig it. You know, I've, I've had the chance also through it to um, do interviews with, with a few big wave surfers that I don't think people would hear anywhere else. Like one, one of the guys uh, on my podcast midway through um, confessed that he had been molested by his surf team manager when he was nine years old. And it turned into this big kind of media thing because because of timing, because it was the same week that uh, the gymnast coach mm. uh, was on trial, yeah. right? So this was like our version in the surf world. And I, it was a really proud moment for me because the surf world um, responded in a very cool way. They were like, hey, you know, Adam, we really appreciate your vulnerability and boldness for bringing this out. And I just don't think that that kind of stuff happens all that often in TV interviews because people get so nervous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a cool, it's, I mean, it's not cool that anyone goes through those experiences, but it is cool when you can build enough trust with the person you're sitting across from, that they do open up and they feel comfortable in saying like, all right, I'm going to fucking share this. Never done it before. Sure. And I've heard yeah. a few of your podcasts as well. And the one where you really opened up about um, being on the edge of committing suicide and being in a really dark place. And man, that's helpful for people because it makes them know that they're not going through it alone. Yeah, nobody does. That I think that was one of the reasons I felt called to talk about that was just this idea that everyone goes through shit, you know, and it's, and it's, it's not mine's worse than yours or, or it's not comparative. It's not uh, who had it worst. It's just we all have some form of shit to go through and challenges in life, right? And how do, we, how do we cope from those things? How do we learn from them? How do we grow? How do we get better? How do we get back up, right? And I think that's, that's something that can be extrapolated to everyone and anyone, you know? Yeah, 100%. What, have, what has been one of your favorite conversations you've had? Hmm... I had a really fun one with Chris Ryan down in Baja. We took, a, I mean, another great thing about the podcast, right, is that you can assume this sense of closeness with people that you haven't known for very long because you dive deep into this, in the subject. And um, Chris has become, Chris is a, the author of a great book called Sex at Dawn. Phenomenal. Um, really smart guy. <laughs> Phenomenal. And uh, 
he has since really helped me with my writing. So I, I'm a columnist for a few different magazines and I'll go over to his house and I'll cook him beet tacos and he'll read my writing and just like anything I can do to get his eyes on my work, um, I will make happen. But we got to take a trip down to Baja together because he's finishing his latest book uh, called Civilized to Death. You better finish the fucking book. Know, it's taking forever. Well, it's it's kind of this great <laughs> combo, right? Because we we drove down and and like I will show him some of my writing, and I'm like, okay, well, here's you know, I have this New York Times bestselling author looking at my work, and then he'll get lazy and be like, hey, you want to go walk down to the beach and hang out? Like, no, Chris, we're gonna do a whole nother hour. But um, yeah, he's someone who's had a really big influence on my life um, through the podcast and just through the friendship. Um, he doesn't talk about this often, but um, I don't think he would mind me sharing it. When he, when Chris was six years old, he, uh, I believe was six years old, he had a researcher follow him around for a couple of weeks. He agreed to it and uh, his family agreed to it. He would study his activities, his classwork, and they f- discovered that no surprise now that Chris is a genius, like 99th percentile in every category. And he told me that he kind of used that um, pedantic nature and that pretension as a shield throughout his junior high and high school years. Like, this doesn't matter. I'm smarter than you. And then he took a trip to Alaska in his early 20s. Um, he hitchhiked all over Alaska. He was taken in by um, a bunch of different families. And he had the insight that, you know, they're treating me nicer than I would treat them if they came to my house. Mm. So what is true intelligence? You know, like who's who's the smart one here? Just because they don't know, you know, who these famous authors are and they don't know all the stuff that I do, like, true kindness is what matters here. And I think that he was really able to to break out of that. The way that he describes it is he was able to break out of that identity. And I just think that that's so cool because now he's he's this genius who travels around in his big red van and does podcasts and writes these big idea books that change the world. But I, I think that that is, um, it's not often that people are able to just give it away in that um, that honest of way. And I've, I've always really respected him for that. Yeah, and that, I've, I'm glad you shared that because I had no idea that it, that's exactly how he got to this point. But I often wonder like when someone has that kind of skill set and level, how they come to a place of humility and they come to a place of wanting to share and serve others, you know, and he's certainly in that place now. You know, I think psychedelics certainly can play a hand in that too. And he credits psychedelics uh-huh. with helping him through that. Yeah. Yeah, that's major. When, uh, I mean, fucking anybody that knows Santa Cruz knows Santa Cruz is no stranger to, <laughs> to plant medicines. When did you first start, you know, playing around with different, different tools from, from nature? I started uh, using psychedelics, probably took mushrooms for my first time when I was 24, 25 years old. I'm 28 now. Damn, you're that's holding out in Santa yeah. Cruz. That's holding out long in I Santa know. Cruz. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah, man, I think that they're really useful when taken in the right set and with with the right mindset and in the right setting. I think that they're very powerful and should not be taken lightly. I think that a lot of times we kind of just talk about them as this really fun, like, woo, the party drug. But, uh, you know, they're, they're serious. And I've gained a lot of great insights from psychedelics. I've also blown it a few times. And, you know, I took LSD once at a, at a festival called Symbiosis. And I've heard of that festival. It's really fun. It's like Burning Man on water. Okay. Um, and we were, took LSD, we went to a Santi Gold concert, and then an R.L. Grime concert right after that. We're like having a blast, you know, running around. And then uh, my girlfriend and I were walking back to camp, and we saw a guy next to one of these art pieces. And he was face down, and he wasn't moving. And great example of the bystander effect. People were just walking by him and not doing anything. And meanwhile, I'm like, man, these stars are kind of blending together here, and that pink's looking real pink, but fuck, there's a guy face down right now. And I walked over to him, I turned him over, and he was unresponsive. Mm. So I called over my girlfriend. She's like, I was like, get help, get the first responder. So she runs away, and I, ha- I start doing chest compressions on this guy while I'm on LSD. If there's one thing that will snap you out of a psychedelic ship real fast, it's doing chest compressions on a guy. And luckily, he woke up after about a minute. I don't know that he was fully gone, but he was right on that edge of overdosing. Um, and he got up, and I put him in my arms, and he started vomiting. And I was just like shaking at that point. And the first responders came over and luckily everything turned out okay. But it was a great example of me getting too high in a situation where I couldn't necessarily control it. And I think that this is like, honestly, my biggest fear is getting into a situation where I know that there are skills that I could have learned to help and and I haven't done it. And I haven't taken the time to um, learn first aid, learn CPR. If there's one thing that I can, you know, that the audience takes away from this conversation is if you haven't taken CPR class, if you haven't taken first aid, just do it. It's cheap. It's one weekend. And if you one day on a weekend rock up on a car accident and someone has has sliced their femoral artery and you have a tourniquet in your car, you can save that person's life. And the amount of people that I have personally had to um, help in the ocean is, I mean, I just I can't count it. And the bystander effect is trippy to see. You see someone in trouble and no one's doing anything. And I think that for your audience, which are capable people who enjoy learning, I think that that gaining a few of those skills um, can be some of the most important skills that you ever learn. Okay. Yeah. I think that's great advice. I did um, CPR. I actually was doing EMT class past that to become a firefighter a few years back while I was fighting before I got into podcasting and going a different route. Really? But yeah, it's 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 a powerful tool to have to not, I mean, it's it's not like you don't worry, but when you're in those situations, it makes it a little easier knowing like, okay, I can go back to this these sets and reps and, and different things and try to figure out, you know, a course of action at least yeah. to, to help until 
Well, you can systematize it, right? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. become chaotic. You don't panic when you mm -hmm. when you know when you know that there's something that you can do, and you know that there are certain steps that you can take. Um, the whole situation becomes so much more manageable. Um, so I surf uh, professionally and kind of specialize in surfing big waves, and we've had a few deaths within the big wave surfing community over the last. 10 years. And just recently when I was out in Hawaii, I took what was called the Big Wave Risk Assessment course, which is a course that has been uh, developed by a few of surfers in this core community to learn to teach people basic life-saving skills. And they, it, you know, when we're out in the water, one of the best tools that we have is a jet ski to go in and pick people up. Um, so it's really fun for me to, to get to learn how to become a more responsible person, right? You decouple the word responsible, it's response-able. Mm. And we're always learning, and, and I have actively sought out a few mentors who can teach me a few of these skills because it's it, it, doing fun shit doesn't get any less fun if you do it more safely and if you have uh, the ability to handle the situation. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's, it's something... I don't know, maybe you can talk a bit about this. Um, certainly, I guess I have it with fighting, but something that I really appreciated about surfing came from uh, the books, uh, the, the Rise of Superman, I think that's the name of it, Kotler's book, and then uh, Stealing Fire by Kotler and Jamie Will, and talking about how we hack flow states. And that's why we've seen such a rise in extreme sports, because when your life's on the line, you're forced to fucking tune into that flow state, and that we're not people aren't adrenaline junkies, they're flow junkies. And flow is a cascade of neurochemicals and feelings that go far beyond adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're... That's, that's been kind of your draw to the sport of surfing, or is it just more growing up in Santa Cruz and being in the culture? Well, I think that it's, it's been a lot of things, right? I'm the youngest of five, and most of my older brothers and sisters surf. So from a very young age, I had a surfboard in one hand and a skateboard in the other. And... Probably early on, it was because of the community. All my friends surfed. Then I realized that it was this tool for, for me to be able to see the world and go to some of these far out places that very, very few people get to go, right? I was telling you yesterday, I had a chance to do that story in Sri Lanka. And while I, while I was there, I got to surf a point break by myself and there were elephants walking along the beach. Like <laughs> You don't really get to do that in tennis. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then it's it's incremental, right? I think that surfing big waves is something that I'm drawn to for a lot of reasons. Partly, it is the community. I really like big wave surfers. There's a kind of closeness that you can assume. I would imagine similarly with fighting um, to these other men and women who are going through a situation that sucks. You know, if you have a 40 foot wave that's about to land on your head. Uh, and there's someone right next to you, you're probably going to be friends after that, right? And if yeah. the, if you're out at a wave like Mavericks and you are sitting in the bowl and there's a set coming and there's you know, a 50-foot wave coming at you, what you need to hold the line. This is a, a kind of nuanced aspect of big wave surfing, but you can't scramble out the back and then turn around and try and catch the wave. You actually need to sit there and, and calculate when the wave is going to get to you and when you can catch that wave, right? So if you're out there with a few other people and you're all sitting there, 
you decide not to paddle, and you're like, okay, we're going to hold the line, we're going to whip it and go on this wave. That's a cool experience to go through with other people. Um, and I do think that I know my limits. I do think that I'm responsible when I go surf big waves. I, I don't need to catch the biggest wave in the world, but it sure is fun when you get a big one. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be an experience. I've surfed, I think, once in uh, Maui when I was 13. My mom took me, had a little <clears throat> a little surfer guide, like uh, almost like Paul Rudd in, in the movie. Yeah. Where he's giving out fake names and shit. Um, it's it's a great experience. And I'm not, I'm not I haven't I haven't really taken the deep dive into it. And you were talking a bit about getting into hunting through um what's gone on with the coral reefs, but you're you're, you're now you're into it, right? Yeah, very into on, it. You've been on hunts. You've gotten some kills. Talk about the different places that you've hunted and what you've what you've gone for. Sure, I will start by saying that I'm still a novice compared to a lot of people. And I've gone to Hawaii a number of times and hunted pig. Uh, and throughout California, we also have pig. This year, I'm hoping to go on a few deer hunts. Um, but again, you like surfing. It is this way to incentivize you to learn about your natural surroundings, right? Whether it's learning about the, the way that the wind's blowing, learning how to go to call rams in. <laughs> My friend Justin can do it way better than I can. Or <laughs> surfing, right? Like most surfers are very tuned in to environmental issues because we are incentivized to learn about them, right? If I go to Indonesia to go surfing and I and there is plastic spewing out of rivers as it is right now because they have switched their materials economy to plastics and have no infrastructure for dealing with it, I'm going to start learning about plastic pollution. Like, I mean, I'll sh I think I busted this photo out just recently, but I mean, this is a photo that of a guy surfing in Indonesia. I love Ryan throw that up against the Look at that shit. And he's getting barreled and there are plastic bags going over him in the wave, right? So, you know, I think that, that surfers are a unique community. And similarly, in the way that hunter, hunting is, hunters are a, a unique community in the way that they are incentivized to learn about their natural surroundings and get involved. You know, imagine if... Uh, Every time it rained and you went to go work out in the Onnit gym, there was shit spewing through the vents and you were getting ear infections. You and your buddies would get together real quickly and you'd start knocking on doors and figuring out how you can make the waste management systems more effective. You know, in the UK, uh, in 1990, a quarter of the beaches were passing the minimum basic water quality uh, standards, a quarter of them. Surfers are getting sick left and right because there was raw effluent flowing out into the ocean. So a small group of them. Say that again. There affluent? was the raw shit. Okay. Raw there we shit. Go. That's yeah. What I was there we go. For. I thought that's what it was. That was I my ten dollar sure. attempt at a ten dollar word. There. You got it. You went way pat, way over my fucking head. Yeah. <laughs> um, and surfers started knocking on doors of Parliament in the UK, and they got uh, Parliament to. Um, over the next 10, 10 years, invest in to invest in waste management systems 
And now over 98% of the beaches in the UK pass the minimum basic water quality standard. So it is, I think, a good example of a small group of people. Um, what's, what's the Margaret Mead quote? Never doubt that a small group of engaged citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever have. Um, and I think that these communities of surfers, of hunters, um, when organized, you know, when we don't live, in, when we don't exist in this kind of atomized state of individual gain over common good, when we get together, when we get together for beers and talk about the issues in our community, especially issues that are not polarized, especially issues that most people just haven't thought of, right? Like plastic pollution. If it doesn't affect you, you probably don't have an opinion on it. But as soon as you see that, you know, the plastics industry and the oil industry are inextricably tied together. And what funds the plastic industry are companies like Shell and Chevron, and that they have goals to increase pl plastic production by 40% over the next 10 years. All of a sudden, you start asking questions and getting involved, right? And I think that um, that really is how... I've, I've been lucky enough to make enough films where I have seen enough activists who are in the trenches doing the work, and I know that that is how change happens. It's by a few friends getting together, figuring out what the issues are in their community, and changing legislation. Because I don't think that cultural, I don't think that cultural sh shift is enough. I think you also need um, legislative shift. You know? Yeah. I, I have a, I'm curious because um, not to go down the politics rabbit hole, sure. but we've seen a number of things get defunded with the Trump administration and EPA being a, a you know vast cuts, vast changes. Um, how much do you think is being affected right now due to these changes? A lot. Oh, absolutely. I think that the. Um, the downsizing of Bears Ears National Monument is a major one. Um, for th those of you who don't know, Bears Ears is um, this beautiful landscape uh, out in Utah. And uh, the Trump administration and Secretary of Interior Ryan Zinke have proposed to downsize it uh, tremendously. You know, they don't say this, but it's clear that they're doing it for oil and gas reasons. I was wondering if he was putting up the golf courses. Yeah. Um, and Patagonia is actually suing them. Yvonne <laughs> mm. Chouinard and Patagonia are suing uh, Secretary of State. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's another component to this is, is companies getting involved and actually taking a stand. Because as Noam Chomsky, as Noam Chomsky says, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And I, and I really commend a company like Onnit for taking a stand on certain issues, whether it's psychedelics you know, and, and health uh, or Patagonia on environmental issues. I think that companies that aren't taking a stand um, and showing that they do have values are getting left in the dust. And we're seeing that very quickly. Hmm. I got a question further on on its stance on environmental issues because we're, we, we are definitely pushing to be a greener company. Uh, obviously, you saw how many plastic cups we're pushing out through that cafe. How, how does, A, how does that affect the environment? And B, what are some 
what are some ways we could go about that better? Sure. Well, to zoom out, uh, let's take a look at the materials economy, right? So right now, the way that we make stuff is through a process of extraction to production to distribution to consumption to disposal. So we are running a linear system on a finite planet. And you cannot run a linear system on a finite planet forever. Right? There's a great film that I recommend uh, people check out called The Story of Stuff. It has like 20 million views on YouTube by a woman named Annie Leonard. And she talks all about this. She breaks it down. So when you understand that 99% of the feedstock, this is the raw materials to make plastic, come from oil, um, and that it really never goes away, um, you start to ask yourself some questions. You know, so I think that from where we are right now to where we need to get to is from this disposable materials economy to a zero waste economy. So using things that are that are like just bringing your own cup. Biomimicry, okay. replicating nature as much as we can. Nature has very little waste, and that's how it's been able to sustain itself for so long. So going back to what we were first talking about, like exercising some humility and replicating those natural systems, I think is how we will get from here to there. Um, you know, so I think that with plastic, yeah, it's as simple as bring your own cup. Just yeah, I remember, I remember being in the Bay Area when they made it, uh, they outlawed all plastic bags because of how many plastic bags and grocery stores wound up in the Bay. And it was an absurd amount. And so most cities didn't have any problem saying, cool, it's paper bags or bring your own. And then they give you a discount if you brought your own reusable bag. And it was like everyone was, all the old farts were up in arms like, I just want my plastic bags. I don't want to pay 10 cents for paper and blah, blah, blah. And then fucking six months later, everyone's got their reusable bag and it didn't mean shit. It was like the easiest shift I'd ever seen. Plus you're getting a discount for every bag you bring in. It's a great example of how humans respond to incentives. You put a $10 tax on something and then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, I'm going to bring my own bag, right? And I think yeah. that that you know this better than most people, that people do respond to incentives. If you want to get someone in shape, how are you going to do it? Right? It's going to be through these, these incentives. And I think that the conservation world could take a few pages out of the human optimization movement um, regarding behavioral change. Yeah, I, I mean, there's, it's funny. You know, people have both, there's pros and cons to how we incentivize electric cars and things like that with government rebates and and uh, some people bitch and bellyache about that. And obviously in California, they were giving out HOV lane stickers for for a lot of Priuses back in the day. And then so many fucking people had Priuses overnight. They were like, all right, no more for the Prius. It's got to be 100% electric. And uh, then you only get it for a year or whatever the case is. But there's no doubt it works. You know, there really is no doubt that it works. Yeah, I, I go back and forth on, on my politics quite a bit because I do think that that like a big bloated government that has um, programs that we create, like they're never going to want to downsize. They're never going to want to get uncreated. So I can very much empathize with conservatives and libertarians yeah. in, that, in that regard. And I think that local government... Um, 
is where people can really move the needle on a lot of these issues. I think we pay way too much attention to national politics and not nearly enough to local politics. Um, so I get it in in that regard. I also see, though, that when we slash environmental laws, like what's happening with the current administration, the corporations are the ones who win, right? Because the corporations can then create products that have a big impact on our natural surroundings and really lower the quality of life for a lot of people. I think it's it's also important to note that poor people are inordinately affected by environmental issues. If you look at Cancer Alley up north from Louisiana, where the um, oil pipelines go through, where the cancer rates are just through the roof, it is with poor people. If you look at what's happening in Indonesia right now, where they have rivers of plastic flowing out into the ocean, and what the plastic companies are recommending is just to build more incinerators, which then release carcinogenic chemicals into the air, this is affecting poor people, right? So uh, on the other hand, right, like I do think that we need environmental regulations that make it so that you, that you are less likely to die of cancer in 10 years. You know, imagine if we had that same, the same way that we think about, um, you know, plastic is the way that we think about lead, right? Like, oh yeah, lead poisoning. Like, oh yeah, there shouldn't be any regulation on that. Let's just let it all go out there, right? But we we banned that because we were seeing this impact on ourselves and and on our natural surroundings. Yeah, it doesn't take it doesn't take much to want to respond when you see your children changing permanently. It's a big, it's a big one. So let's, let's, let's get into, I wanted to, I, I do have a, I am curious. How did you meet Chris Ryan in the first place? How'd you get plugged in with Duncan and a lot of these guys? Cause you're, you're pretty plugged in with, with uh, some top tier dudes. Um, <laughs> I offer a lot of free surf lessons. <laughs> no, uh, Chris hasn't taken me up on the surf lesson. Pussy. That's surprisingly. Pussy. Really? Damn. I know. Um, you know, I think that, well, I, I met Chris through the podcast. He had, he had me on his and then we became friends. And since then, we've had a chance to go down to Costa Rica together and, and went to the spot called Rhythmia, which is a medically licensed ayahuasca That's treatment right. center. I wanted you to talk about that. Sure. And then uh, we've gone on a bunch of trips together and we have we have mutual interests and I... I think that, uh, is it Tim Ferriss who says you're the mean of the five people, you're the median of the five people you surround yourself with most? Mm -hmm. I really took that piece of advice to heart, whether it's with big wave surfing, I surround myself with people who I can learn from, whether that's with writers or comedians, any skills that I want to learn, um, I make it worth people's while to teach me. You know, so I think it's it's pretty simple. You know, most people are very willing to help out and be generous with their time if you're willing to heed their advice. I think that's a big part of it. Is I I really go in whether it's you know on a hunting trip with Justin Lee on the Big Island or whether it's with uh, you know writing edits with Chris Ryan uh, with humility and with uh, a cup that is empty. Yeah, Chris uh, gave you a pretty fucking giant compliment on one of his shows. He was saying that your 
willingness to learn and to ask questions and actually do what whatever is is answered is is uh, unparalleled with most people your age. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something that's that's pretty personal, and I haven't shared this on my podcast or any other for New a, shit. A, a number of reasons. But I, I'm going to start talking about it on on my podcast. Um, so I told you about my mom. Um, is a really wonderful woman. Her name is Kimberly. She started uh, a homeless teen center in Santa Cruz um, when I was a little kid. It was the first place where homeless people, homeless teens could go. Um, and I learned a lot about homeless people through that experience. She always told me, Kyle, you don't need to give a homeless person money if they ask you for it, but you need to look them in the eye. Because the strangest experience that that homeless teens would tell her about was that they would go days without anyone looking them directly in the eye. And you know, that, those kinds of lessons early on really, really helped um, me. And, and I have just the utmost respect for her. When I was 13 years old, she got, mar- uh, she got together with a really wonderful guy named Foster Gamble. Foster Gamble and my mom together over the next eight years made a documentary called Thrive, which is a very controversial documentary. It's now one of the most widely seen um, independent documentaries in the world. Um, It goes into the banking system, hence how I was learning about the banking system as a 17-year-old kid. It goes into uh, the banking elite. It goes into free energy technologies. It goes into UFOs. A lot of topics that I am not necessarily on board with, but was privileged enough to be at the table for when I was 16 years old. Like I would go to dinner at their house and you know, the undersecretary of housing and urban development in the first Bush administration would be having a conversation about how she personally used taxpayer money to fund dark aerospace weapons programs and then I would leave there and I would go to a house party and start shotgunning Paps Blue Ribbons with my friend. <laughs> like, so like this, this dichotomy of growing up in these two different worlds was really strange and, and I think influenced a lot of my curiosity, you know, growing up, seeing documentaries like Who Killed the Electric Car, um, The Internet's Own Boy and Merchants of Doubt, where you, you really realize that all is not as it seems. And then after Thrive came out, seeing you know how they're they're labeled as conspiracy theorists, um, and they it was it's a strange experience for me because I know that my mom and Foster are very smart people. I know that they have a massive library. When you walk into their house, it's you know subjects on like the banking elite, you know, new energy technologies. Uh, <laughs> fractional reserve, like all this stuff. I'm okay. You do your research, and like this is very far away from what most people believe is true. So, and I think that the great challenge of my life, and and why I'm so interested in journalism and kind of getting to the bottom bottom of things, is because um, like I think it's really forced me to be able to hold two competing views in my mind at once, and. And and know that even if I am not on board, 
you know, with a lot of, with some of the subjects that they're talking about, like it is possible that one day this might turn out to be true. You know, they're, and they're making a documentary right now, which is Thrive 2, where they are um, meeting with a lot of these inventors who claim to have these new energy technologies with rotating magnetic fields. I haven't seen them. They claim to have seen them. So what do you do? Right? I think yeah. that for most people, it's, it's very easy to label people as conspiracy theorists and be like, oh, that's bullshit. But I also see what a trigger word that is. It's, like, it's almost like being called a racist, right? Like it just shuts people up. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. But conspiracies are happening all the time. It I think that- but, but that doesn't shut up the flat earthers. It does not. It does not. <laughs> they do, they do not, not think that the earth is that's, flat. That's, that like is, a, that's throwing fuel on the fire. It sure, it sure is, right? So I'm, I don't know what the, the solution is, right? And, and again, I think that I just, I think that a lot of times going down these deep rabbit holes, which I've gone down um, through circumstance and natural curiosity, can sometimes lead to a paralyzing effect, mm. right? And, I, and I, so I think that the, the place that I, choose to work is on these issues that are right in front of us. These issues that I know that we can move the needle on and I can touch them. I can feel them. I know that if we um, can get to a place where we lessen our use of plastic or what, or we designate national monuments, I know that that will be good in this short time that I'm here on earth, like leaving the campsite a little bit nicer than I found it is something that I can work on and I can use my skills on behalf of. Fuck yeah. You've got so many dope videos out. Where, where can people find you on YouTube? And will they be able to see the, the one that you showed me with Justin and, and some of the other ones, like the sure. Sri Lanka video, things like that? Yeah, yeah, that's all on YouTube. The, the one on coral reefs is called Hunting Wild Pigs to Save Coral Reefs, but people will find me. It's, I'm, I'm easy enough. Okay. And the last name is T-H-I-E-R-M-A-N-N. -N. You got it. Dope. Kyle, it's been excellent having you on the show. We're for certain going to run you back in the future. Love to have you here in town. And uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you, brother. I'm honored. Thank you. Fuck yeah. Thank you guys for listening to the On It Podcast with Kyle Tierman. Make sure you go to Kyle Tierman's show. It's his podcast. As mentioned, dude has talked to everyone on planet Earth who's worth a damn. He's got amazing episodes with Duncan Trussell from Burning Man, as well as Jim Fadiman, the author of The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, along with a laundry list of other people in the who's who, including myself, who took a deep dive with him on his podcast. Make sure you check that out. Leave him a five-star rating. And while you're at it, leave the On It Show a five-star rating. You can now do it from your phone. Used to be a total pain in the ass, but now you can do it from your phone. It is very much appreciated and it helps people find out about these wonderful shows like the On It Podcast and the Kyle Tierman Show. Thanks for listening.